0: Good evening. This morning we uh, covered the introduction to uh, Second Thessalonians, and then started off and got through about verse four of uh, chapter one. So, if you can turn with me to Second Thessalonians chapter one, we'll be read the chapter again and and go from there. One of the things we mentioned was, and uh, we talked about it and in verse 4, it talks about that they're going through tremendous persecution, tremendous tribulations, sufferings that were taking place in their lives and um, where people were going after them. But not only that is the normal affairs of life and the consequences and of our choices and actions and everything else that comes upon us. And sometimes you get so buried with these tribulations that he lose sight of the hope of the return of the Lord Jesus Christ and to see him again. And and this is what we believe happened perhaps in this church of Thessalonica because he praises them for two things. That's faith and love, but he doesn't mention the hope like he'd mentioned in 1 Thessalonians. Afterwards, Mike uh, came up in, uh, in the wheelchair. Uh, what's his last name? Paul. Came up and talked to me. And um, he's, he's been through a lot, but he told me when his his... Incident took place. He remembers laying there in the hospital. He's a quadriplegic, looking up, couldn't move his hands, his feet, anything, and just staring up at the ceiling. And he goes, man, I just, what now, God? This is what we're talking about is that, and he could identify, when you go through circumstances in life that are so overbearing on you that your eyes might get off of the Lord. It overtakes you. And then the Lord said to Mike, he said it just one word came across his chest and he said, patience, just patience. And um, now we know that he uh, has a use of the upper body um, and he, he's just a paraplegic. So, but it's a tremendous story when you talk to people that go through these circumstances in life. And this is something that that, that is the effects of of sin and effects of, of, of life, but this wasn't caused by persecution. But when you add on the persecution that they were enduring where they're being dragged off into prison and being beaten and um, being excommunicated from their their uh, society, it's a lot of stress, a lot of uh, of, uh, of um, distractions can come. I'm trying to think of the word that, and my mind's going blank. But that you... You all of a sudden stop looking towards the hope of the Lord Jesus Christ. Stop looking towards his coming again. And this is what happens. And we can get so overwhelmed with our circumstances that uh, this can happen in our lives. So let's read uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. And we're going to look at this and uh, we're going to go into it a little more in depth and uh, finish off this chapter. Paul, Savanus, and Timothy to the church of Thessalonica and God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father And the Lord Jesus Christ, we are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is fitting, because your faith grows exceedingly, and the love of every one of you all abounds towards each other, so that we ourselves boast of you among the churches of God for your patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations that you endure, which is the manifest evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you also suffer. Since it is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you and to give you who trouble rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. When he comes in that day to be glorified in all his saints and to be admired among all those who believe because our testimony among you was believed. Therefore, we also pray always for you that our God would count you worthy of this calling and fulfill all the good pleasure of his goodness and the work of faith with power. That the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you, you and him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. I mentioned this morning, and we got into a little bit, but uh, um, what happened is as they were going along, that perhaps there was false teaching that entered in amongst their assembly, that the day of the Lord had already come upon them, or perhaps the rapture had already taken place. You know, our uh, theology matters to us. What we believe and how we observe the Bible and the doctrines dictate how we live. And And, and simple doctrines can overthrow people in their faith and cause them to stumble. There's two in the history of the church that has really overthrown people in their Christian faith. One of them is Wesleyan perfectionism. And Wesley taught that you can arrive to a state of second blessing where you no longer sin. You enter this perfect state in which you are now walking sinless in your your daily walk. Harry Ironside was one that fell onto this trap, and he wrote a book, Holiness, True or False. And there was actually a psychiatric ward that these individuals would go to 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 get comfort because they found out that they couldn't walk a perfect life. Temptation would come into their lives, and what would end up happening is sin would enter their mind, but then they would try to replay it. Well, temptation is not sin, so I didn't do this. And then they'd keep playing these games with themselves. And eventually they figured out they can't walk like this. So Harry Ironside, True Holiness, True or False, wrote a book about it and how he went in and he discovered what true holiness is, what true sanctification is. The other thing is, is I saw the effects of it personally, it is in the, the hyper-Calvinists and their belief of, uh, of of double predestination and you get into the the, uh, the acts of where God declares and decrees certain things. I had a good friend at Emmaus Bible College that was studying the word and was going off the Lord. And later on... Uh, Several years later, I met with him. And when I met with him, we uh, sat down and he started dropping some foul language. And I'm like, man, what's going on, John? And uh, he told me, he goes, you know, he came home and his parents ended up getting a divorce. And all this stuff happened between his parents and the fighting and everything else. And his mentality is, where is God in all this? And then he comes back with God decreed it. God stated he, 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 he made this happen. And I tried to explain to him, no, he didn't. This is the effects of sin and so forth. But the effects of what you believe in the scripture affects how you live your life and can uh, cause some to stumble. Turn with me real quick over to 2 Timothy chapter 2. And this is why it's really important for us to constantly search the scripture to be accurate in what we say and what we teach and what we believe. And that when false doctrine does come in, we have to put a stop to it. But this is a simple one in verse 17 of 2 Timothy chapter 2. It says, and their message will spread like cancer. Hymenatus and Philetus are of this sort, who have strayed concerning the truth, saying that the resurrection is already past. And they overthrow the faith of some. You see that by the mere teaching that the, the, the rapture had already taken place, the resurrection had already taken place. And that these believers were going to go through this tribulational period in which God did not intend. Certain ones, their faith are overthrown. They can't deal with it. They can't uh, cope with it. So what you believe affects how you carry yourself and how you live your life for the Lord. And I believe this is what perhaps might have taken place in this church is that people came in and we know from chapter two and verses one and two that certain ones came in and even represented Paul and said, hey, this day has come upon us. You're in the tribulation. It's here. You're, you're going to have to suffer through it. And certain ones uh, were mixed up in what they believe. So Paul is going to take this time and we thank the Lord that he did to give us a tremendous um writing on the day of the Lord and the man of sin and, the, and when the Lord Jesus Christ is coming back and so forth, that it's the next event on the eschatological uh, events that take place is that the rapture is going to take place and then the man of sin is going to be revealed and so on and so forth. You go from there. So Justin's going to break this all down for us. So if you have any questions, you just point them towards him. But this, it's important what we believe and how it affects our daily life, how it affects our walk with the Lord and so forth. So when people come in, and there's many doctrines, many teachings, many things that, that, that people could come into a local assembly and affect the way that we live our lives to frustrate Christians in the in their daily walk. One of the things, several years ago, we bought our house, in, uh, our first house in 2004, was it? Um, yeah, Amy doesn't remember, but 2004. During this time, it was a tremendous time of where Basically, these banks would qualify anyone for for a loan, for a house. And um, I remember sitting down with our uh, our uh, our lender, and she told me, "Oh, get whatever house you want. I, I can qualify you for it." I thought, "Well, that's nice that uh, you can qualify me for it, but I have to make the payment." And and then they they do these what are these uh, three arms, one arms, whatever I forget what they are, but. A little short-term loan that you get this really low interest rate. Then at the end of that term, then all of a sudden it goes up and it adjusts to the thing. Well, I remember at work, and over these years, people were buying houses. They were taking out seconds on their houses. They were they were getting boats. They were getting all this stuff. And um, you're like, man, these people look like they're making good money. But it is all debt. They just were accumulating all this, this stuff by the means of debt. Little did they know and what they didn't think about it when you live for the moment is all you care about is satisfying yourself right now. You don't look forward to a day of judgment. You don't look forward for it. I call it a day of reckoning when you got to pay this money back. It's not free money. And when I told the lender, I said, I, I can't. I got to make this house. Pay. I can't afford that house. The debt was trying to be financially responsible to say, look, I'd love to have this big house and, 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 and buy this house, but i got to live within my means. Well, others that did not, and I remember a time in, in the police department where all of a sudden the economy tanked, the, the, uh, the department had no money, no raises were coming in. Overtime, all cash overtime was stopped. We went years of just time only. We just banked our time. And what ended up happening is these individuals, a lot of officers lost their houses. They lost a lot of stuff, and... Uh, Went through tremendous hardship. And you can say on one sense, you can say, I feel sorry for him. But then, like my little, my partner who's a little heart, more hard-hearted, he, they got what they deserved. <laughs> it was what they deserved. They, 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 they were greedy. They went after all this stuff. They lived above their means. And now that day of reckoning came upon them. And they had to pay the price. The reason why I bring this up is because this is exactly what we see today. We see in the world that that men and women want to live with no accountability towards God. They want to live for the moment. They want to live for the pleasures of the flesh. They want to go about and carry themselves as if they're not going to give an account to anyone. You see, there will be a day of reckoning for them. They will stand in judgment. And this is what the Apostle Paul is going to talk about with these and encourage these Thessalonian believers is that every persecution you go through, they're going to give an account for. You don't strike a Christian and the Lord just turns his back and says, ah, that's not a sin. He will repay. He will um, come about and issue judgment upon that. And we know the scripture says, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. It's not our place to judge. It's not our place to, to turn around and execute judgment. We leave that with God and how he handles it. And actually, in Romans chapter 1, it talks about the wrath of God presently is upon them that, that uh, practice unrighteousness and that reject the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a present tense judgment that God is judging this world. And as they know who God is and they reject who God is, God confirms them in that that, that uh, um, decision. And it says he gives them over. And this is a judicial uh, judgment sentence in which he does to the unbeliever. He gives them over to what they want and for the destruction of their flesh that when he gives them over hopefully they'll see the emptiness of it and they'll turn towards him and we know the progression of Romans chapter 1 and where it goes. So there's that judgment also but there's, a, there's going to be a coming judgment that everyone is going to give an account and let me just throw the believers in there. We're going to give an account as well. We have the judgment seat of Christ that is coming forth. Where we're going to stand before our Savior and we're going to receive the, 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 the rewards that we have done for him. But we will give an account of how we lived our lives. And for some of us, it's going to be probably just quietness. Nothing there. Nothing to reward you with. Nothing to say, well done. You've escaped the flames of fire, but you stand before the... The, the, the Lord God Almighty, the one that, that bore your sins on the cross, that died for you. And it's like, what have you done for the Savior? And there's others that are going to just be given rewards upon rewards and praise upon praise because of their sacrifices, because of their living for the Lord. And this is what we're going to get into is that you are counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are called to suffer and to go through this stuff, that, that you have the privilege and the right right now, in the opportunity to suffer for Jesus Christ, to live for him, to take the persecution, to go through the trials, to go through the tribulation, whatever comes your way, and to endure it and bring glory to God, the Father and Lord Jesus Christ. This is a tremendous privilege we have. Look at verse 5. It says, "...which is manifest evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God, for which also suffer." This manifest evidence uh, is, in the original, is translated correctly, manifest evidence, but also carries this idea of proof, of evidence, of showing forth the righteousness of God. And one of the things that, as these Christians, and I think it points back to verse 4, in that in all your persecutions and tribulations, he's putting, he's pushing back and he's looking at that. He's saying, this is evidence of the righteousness of God in you. Because, see, it's a natural thing for uh, sinners to persecute, to go after the Christian because of their sinful nature and their hatred for God and their rejection of who God is. The Lord Jesus Christ was very clear. Servant isn't greater than, than his master. They're going to treat you the same way that they treated me. It's not going to be any different. And when the Lord Jesus Christ was on earth and he walked as a man, what did he do? He did tremendous miracles. He made the lame to walk, the blind to see, and so forth. And as you follow his life and everything he did, he represented the righteousness of God, and they crucified him. They didn't want him. They wanted to release Barabbas, and they crucified him and put him on the cross of Calvary, and they spit in his face, and they mocked him, and they beat him. And we shouldn't expect any different to be treated we shouldn't, be, we shouldn't expect anything less. But one of the things that God does do and through this manifestation this proof is that as we suffer righteousness and we suffer unrighteously for righteousness sake, as we are persecuted for being a Christian, for representing Christ, this also is judgment upon these people and shows forth the righteousness of God. And to give you an example of that is Stephen. When Stephen was martyred, he probably had one of the biggest effects on the Apostle Paul. His feet were laid at the Apostle Paul's feet. When he watched this man be stoned and Stephen would look into heaven and he would recount and say, lay not this sin to their charge. How do you think that affected on Paul? At that time it would have been Saul. How would it have affected him? And when Christians persecute us and they slap us in the face and the Lord says, turn the other cheek. And, and, and you don't retaliate. How does that affect them? It's a lot of people that I think have been saved in, 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 uh, because of that persecution that took place, that these believers absorb it and the effect that it has on other people's lives. And if I was a smarter person like William McDonald and some of these people that have tremendous stories, that they share these stories of men that have been saved because of the persecution from anywhere, from in Japan and the consecration camps to, to Christians that took a stand to whatever it might be that had an impact on their life that they turned towards the Lord Jesus and they see the righteousness of God and they see that distinct relationship in it. But at the end of the day, the end of verse 5 says, may be counted worthy of the kingdom for which you also suffer, that we would be counted worthy and, and this carries the idea of, of really... God looks at you and He gives you the right privilege, the rights and the privilege to suffer for Him. You see, you're never going to be go through any kind of temptations or trials or anything that you can't bear. So the Lord knows what you can handle. He knows what you can go through. He knows how to stretch you out. And there's certain ones that can endure it. There's certain ones that their faith is so great in God that they can suffer this persecution and remember and to remain faithful and true to God and to glorify Him. Job is one. Job is a tremendous example that, that, that Satan, that the Lord would tell Satan, "But you consider my servant Job? And you look at him and everything he went through. I, I can't say that I would respond the way he did. Everything he suffered, the loss, everything, the circumstances that God allowed him to stretch him and, and, and to go through, he was counted worthy to suffer for the Lord Jesus Christ and for God and to represent him. And now we have this tremendous book, the book of Job, that we all recount and we look at. It's a tremendous privilege. And right now, we have that opportunity to suffer. We're not going to have it in eternity. Once we die and we go to be with the Lord or the rapture occurs, there's no longer an opportunity for us to suffer for him. And in the early days, the Christians used to celebrate when they were beaten. And a little bit crazy, but they would be excited that they were counted worthy to be beaten for the Lord Jesus Christ and in His name, and to suffer stripes. I don't want to be beaten for anything, but um, but there's a certain element of where these guys are going through such persecution that that and to take this beating. There's a I don't know what it is an intimacy that you get to suffer for your Lord. That that I don't understand. I, I to be honest, I don't understand it because I've never been persecuted like that. But to have these guys that are so energized and said, man, I was beaten for Christ. There's a unique place, I think, for the Lord with these uh, ones that are persecuted and the martyrs that give their life for the Lord. It's a unique thing. and um, We have it good here in America, but I think these these doors are closing. The the freedom of religion for us, the door is closing. Um, They're actively involved in all this. um, different movements and so forth and I, I wouldn't be surprised with the LGBTQ movement, whatever other letters you want to add on there that they don't start planting uh, people in here to try to hear what we're preaching, to see what we're doing to try to bait you into lawsuits to, they come in and do you discriminate against them and so forth um, there was one individual I forget I talked to, they, they actually his ministry is a visit with assemblies to try to safeguard in your bylaws to protect yourself against certain stuff like this. But it's happening. And um, they they're going after. And there's not going to be long before they're hauling us into to jail. Because right now if you were to stand out against homosexuality, what do you call? Uh, the, 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 the the liberals call you, you know, from a racist to a bigot to a homophobe to and it's turning on us. And it's no different than Paul's day. They, they had homosexuality. They had all these sins running rampant through the Roman Empire. It's just no different. And we're going to go through it. The nice part about it is that we have been this, this Christian country that we've had it so good. And it's a lack of persecution. You can't separate out the real Christians from the fake ones. You have everyone claiming to be a Christian. You have everyone claiming that they're a follower of Jesus Christ. And, and all they can fill out the poll. They'll, they'll check it. Oh, yeah, I'm a Christian. But are they truly born again? Are they truly a follower of Christ? Is the thing. But when persecution starts to come, you're going to see people fade away. And when there's a consequence to saying yes, I'm a Christian, that's when all of a sudden they're going to withdraw that check mark and uh, say, No, I'm not. I'm not anything. And because they don't want to suffer that persecution that will take place, and and it's coming. Verse six says, "Since it is a righteous thing with God to repay." With tribulation, those who trouble you, and to, and to give you who are troubled rest with us, when the Lord Jesus is refilled from heaven with his mighty angels. Here it's a righteous thing he says, and there's two aspects to this righteous thing. The first one is is that it's righteous for God to punish those who persecute His people. It is righteous for God to reserve judgment for those who sin against Him, and to repay them with tribulation. And to chasten them and to come after them, as you see in Romans chapter 1, and judicially give them over to the lust of their flesh and the desires of what they, they so desire. It's also a righteous thing in verse 7, that those who are troubled, those who are persecuted, to give them rest. They are undeserving to continue in that state of persecution for, uh, forever and ever because they don't deserve it. So God himself says, I will give them rest. And there's two instances when the rest will come to fruition. And that time is going to be either they go home to be at the Lord Jesus Christ. They pass away. The minute you pass away, absent from the body, present with the Lord. You're with the Lord Jesus Christ, and there's going to be peace and rest and all that suffering, all that trials and tribulations, everything you've gone through, you'll know for that instant it was all worth it. And then when the Lord Jesus Christ returns for the church, the rapture in which He will take us home to be with himself. Now this uh, second part in which he is actually emphasizing here is the reveal from heaven with his angels in flame and fire is talking about the second coming of Christ in which he's going to return to earth in which he's actually dealing with the bigger picture of unrighteousness that is ruling here on earth. And you see, at the time of the rapture, there's two distinct comings of the Lord Jesus. There's the rapture, Darby referred to it as a secret coming, the time in which he comes to the air and he gathers the Christians to go home with him. And we're gone. We're snatched out of this earth, but the, the world's going to keep rolling on the way it is. And Justin's going to unfold to us what happens after that event. Then you have the second coming of Christ in, in the second phase of where he's going to come down to earth. And when he comes down to earth, he's going to come down, to, as it's mentioned here and flaming fire taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And there's going to come a day of reckoning when he is going to, his literal feet are going to stand, stand uh, in Jerusalem, and he's going to rule righteously from there. He's going to fight against all those that are unrighteous and the nations that rise up against him and are rising up against his people, and he's going to destroy all them. He's going to separation of the sheeps and the goats are going to take place. Those that are unsaved are going to be cast in the lake of fire. The judgment is going to be upon them. Those that uh, are, are, are born again and that accept the Lord Jesus during the tribulation time, as well as 144,000, the elect ones of Israel, are going to go into Israel and they're going to inherit this land. And what's going to happen is for a 1,000 years... You're going to have the Lord Jesus ruling righteously over the entire world. And all this unrighteousness, all this persecution, all this stuff is going to be done away with. And you will have peace for the first time since the Garden of Eden on this world. All the nations are going to come and worship the Lord. All of them are going to come and, and, and pay homage to him and to seek him. He is going to rule righteously and there's no longer these corrupt court systems no longer is people going to get off because of some fancy attorney, attorney that that tricks a jury. Jury, you're going to have a righteous judge that's going to rule righteously, and um, and he's going to rule from Jerusalem. So he's going to come again. Now this flaming fire, and it says taking vengeance on those who do not know God. The flaming fire has been given two suggestions. One of them is is it's either the brightness of his coming. In which the same of Shekinah glory, in which he, his glory and his majesty is dispelled, and by that he uh, conquers his enemies. Look at Second Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse um, 8. I had a friend of mine who uh, is an all millennialist, and he said that the Lord, that the man of sin has already been re revealed, and he's already in earth, and, and, and it was Nero when he persecuted the Christians. After this time, I said, oh, really, that sounds good. I said, well, when did the Lord Jesus Christ come and destroy him? He goes, what? Well, according to Second Thessalonians chapter 8, it says this, and the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming, and that the Lord Jesus Christ himself would come and deal with him. And he couldn't give me an answer, but The brightness of his coming and that glory and majesty that's going to take place. The other, and perhaps it's both of them, is the fiery judgment which is about to be unleashed upon them in the righteous judgment of God and which he is going to bring about. Nonetheless, he's going to come and he's going to take vengeance and he's going to come and set everything straight. A day of reckoning is going to take place. And you have this second coming of Christ in which he's going to come to earth and this is going to take place and you also have the great white throne of judgment that is future that those that are cast aside into hell are going to have a day in which they will stand before Christ and be judged for their sins. But look at who it's upon. It's upon those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is very specific. It's very specific. and It's not a generality of of you live this unrighteous life. It's very specific in the sense that you do not have a personal relationship with God. You don't know him. And it's those that don't know him. And the reason why they don't know him is because they have not obeyed the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. They have not accepted it, but they've rejected it. What they have told God is they have said, God, this gospel, and you look at this in 1 John chapter 5, this gospel, in which you are declaring to me that Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sins, was buried in three days. Rolls uh, three days later, he rose again. Is not a gospel that can save me. It's a gospel I don't want. It's a gospel that they actually called God a liar and say, "No, this stuff isn't true." We had on uh, next door friends, neighbor, whatever that that app is. I saw someone post something. In do you believe that you can have a relationship with God or some question that was. That was posed. And one of the responses of one of the neighbors was, I don't believe in imaginary friends. It's it's tremendously sad. And this is the view in which they have, in which they have rejected God and they want nothing to do with God. In Romans 1, again, we can go back to there, and it's as clear as can be, in which God has reached out to them and they have rejected it. Now, one of the reasons why I'm not a Calvinist is... uh, Uh, is because of verses like this. You see, when it says that on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, this demands a certain understanding. And this demands that in order for the judgment to be able to come upon them in full is that they have to be able to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. They have to be able to um, accept him as their personal savior. And one of the things in hermeneutics and when you the art and science of biblical interpretation, one of the rules is all scriptures have to harmonize together. You can't put the weight of one scripture over another scripture. So as much as this is true and as much as all of the scriptures that come together and you look at your scriptures on election and so forth, when the Calvinists come to these certain verses, they're very weak and shaky. They can't explain this in the ultimate decision of what they'll come to is that they were not chosen. That's why they did not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Or the four point Calvinists would say look, they're, they're, they're um, so far in sin that there's no way they can respond in their, uh, in their sinful state. So therefore God has to come alongside and the gospel goes out but they really can't uh, respond to it. An example of this would be if I place a, a, a thousand dollar bill, there's no, if I place a million dollars up there and I say, hey, jump up and grab it, you can have it. That's an unrealistic expectation. But then I turn around and I say, well, you didn't get it because you didn't jump that high and grab it. But that's not realistic. But see, God is realistic and what God has set up and what God is going to hold them accountable for. And in the great white throne of judgment is he is going to cast them in the lake of fire for their unbelief. Because they made a conscious choice to not know God and a conscious choice to not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And when they make this choice, he is going to hold them to their choice. This is the simple and clear understanding in the, in the, uh looking at the word of God and understanding it. And I went to a course at Emmaus. So, uh, soteriology with Dr. McLeod, who had a stack this note, uh, notes, a notes stack of notes this thick that he would give out to his class. And as we hit these verses, the the, the weakness that the, the, it just dissipated, and it's like you don't account for these other verses. All your weight is over here. So I stepped back. I said, No, these all these verses, as well as these other ones. Let me read them to you. And Second Peter three nine says, "The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering towards us." not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. 1 Timothy chapter 2 and, one, and uh, 1 through 4, we'll just go to 3. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Matthew eighteen fourteen. Even so, it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. And you go on with John three sixteen. for God so loved the world, and you keep adding all these verses, and all these verses hold the weight and describe who God is, that God has done everything in his power to draw these individuals to himself. God sent the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's job is to convict the world of righteousness, of sin, and of judgment. So when you go forth and we preach the gospel, they are convicted of the righteousness of God. They are convicted of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit is working in their life, tugging at them, saying, this is true. And the idea behind it that Vine describes it as as it's like an attorney in courtroom giving his side of the case and trying to convince this person. He's drawing on them. He's tugging at him, and that individual must either say yes, I accept it, or no, I reject it. Yes, I accept it, and it keeps going on, and the Lord keeps working on him and keeps drawing them. And it's so true as a, as a sinner, we don't love God we were left to our own being, then we would never choose God. We would never seek after God. We would never go after him at all. But the thing is that the Lord Jesus Christ has come after us. The son of uh, man be lifted up. He will draw all men unto himself. And he has given within the power through the power of the Holy Spirit and the understanding for these individuals to accept him. So much so that when God issues a judgment upon them that he cast them in the lake of fire for their unbelief, it is not an unjustly judgment. And it's interesting, when you see the Lord Jesus talk to the Pharisees, and he talks to certain people, does he not reach out with the gospel? Does he not expect them to turn and believe in him? He wants people to believe in him. He wants to save mankind. He doesn't, and I believe with all my heart, as the scripture says, he desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. And this is what God desires because this eternal destruction in which they face in verse 9, it says, These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. This destruction is going to take place. And this is where they're cast in the lake of fire. There is going to be a resurrection of the dead and, the <clears throat> and those unsaved ones are be given a body. It's going to be a, a body that is fit for the place in which they're going a body that is not consumed in the flames of fire of hell. This resurrection at the the great white throne of judgment, they're going to be cast in this place for all of eternity. There's no extinction of existence. There's no annihilation. There's no breakup from the suffering. It's eternal, and it's ongoing and ongoing. And the reason why they're there is because they have rejected Jesus Christ as their Savior And a righteous God has to judge the sins and the rejection and everything that they've taken place, and they they are going to absorb that punishment for all of eternity. This place is described as a lake of fire and brimstone, of torment day in and day out, day and night. It's an everlasting fire. It's where the worm does not die, it's where the fire is not quenched. There's outer darkness. There's wailing, gnashing of teeth, blackness of darkness, no rest day or night, and the worst of all is no presence of God. We experience and we know the love and the power of God. This world knows the love and the power of God, and He He allows the the, the sun to shine on the just and the unjust, but they know, and God is blessing these people, but. Everything they know in the goodness of God and everything that flows through Him, they are going to experience the exact opposite and never experience the love of God at all. It says here in verse 9 that they shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. That day is going to come. Our job is to go forth with the gospel. Verse 10 says, And when he comes in that day to be glorified in in his saints, to be admired among all those who believe, because our testimony among you was believed. He's going to come. He's going to vindicate us. And his association with us is that he's going to be glorified in all his saints. And he's going to come, and the world's going to see that from the beginning of time until now, that all those that took a stand for Jesus Christ and are a follower of him, all those that were persecuted, all those that they mocked and so forth, at that moment they'll be vindicated. The Christians will be at rest and peace with God and the world's going to see the Lord Jesus Christ as he truly is. Philippians 2 would say that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Everyone is going to acknowledge the supremacy of the Lord Jesus in this day. And look at what this is. and says um, that you also pray, oh wait, 10. When he comes in that day to be glorified all his saints. And the second part is this, is to be admired among all those who believe because our testimony among you was believed. And I believe what he's talking about here is that when we see that day, that awesome day of the Lord in which the Lord Jesus Christ returns to this earth, we're going to stand in awe of his aw- awesomeness. We're going to stand in amazement of who he is and and how he loves us to death and how he is going to go forth and vindicate us and to vindicate himself. And the vindication is reserved for the father. Even his son right now is being mocked and so forth. But there will come a day when the father will unleash his son and show forth who he truly is and vindicate his son. But as for right now, as the scripture I read, God is long-suffering. He's patient. He's enduring all this stuff. He's enduring the rejection, the persecution, and everything that's going on of his son and of Christians and everything else. And don't think that one thing goes idly by God that he doesn't see and that he doesn't record and he doesn't observe. He sees it all and he understands it all. And there will be a day of reckoning that will take place. And this is the day when the Lord Jesus Christ comes from from heaven with his angels, with us, his saints, with them, and he comes and establishes his righteousness on this earth. Let me read this real quick to you, Bill McDonald. I thought this was good in his commentary. He did a paraphrase of verses five through ten, and listen to how he words it out in this. I'll make this bigger because my eyes are getting bad as I get older. Your patience in the midst. This is uh, verses five through ten, and that he paraphrases. Your patience in the midst of tribulation is very significant. In all this, God is working out his righteous purposes. Your steadfast endurance of persecution shows that you are among the company of those who will share the glories of Christ's coming reign. On one hand, God will measure out judgment to those who are now troubling you. On the other hand, he will give rest to those who now troubled, along with us also, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. He will judge your enemies when he comes from heaven with the angelic executors of his power in flaming fire, punishing those who are willfully ignorant of God and those who are willfully disobedient to the gospel. These will suffer everlasting destruction, even banishment from the Lord's face and from the display of his power when he returns to be glorified in all believers, including you, because you did believe the gospel message we preached to you. Verses 11 and 12, in closing. Therefore, we also pray always for you that our God would count you worthy of this calling and fulfill all the good pleasures of his goodness and the work of faith with power that the name of the Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and our Lord Jesus Christ. And result is our actions and everything we take place that we have the unique privilege and the opportunity to glorify our Savior, to glorify God in everything we do and all the decisions we make and all the persecution and all the trials and all the tribulation, everything we go about. And Paul wants them to continue to fulfill all the good pleasures of God in everything and to his glory and to his praise, to what we seek. That at that end of the day, when we stand before our Savior, as I mentioned this morning, he'll say, well done, my good and faithful servant. Let's close in prayer. Gracious God and Father, we just thank you so much. We thank you so much for your love. We thank you so much for this relationship we have with you and that intimacy that you are one with us. And Father, whatever we're going through, you are there. You see it. You know our works. You know our tribulations. You know our trials. You know the persecutions. You know everything that we endure. And we just thank you for that opportunity to suffer for you. We pray that you'll give us the grace that is sufficient to carry through, to glorify you in all that we do, Father. And we just look forward to the day when we will see the Lord Jesus Christ face to face and we can look into the eyes of our Savior, the one that suffered and died on the cross of Calvary for us, the one that redeemed us, that paid it all. And Father, it's of a reasonable service that when I look at all that he's done for me, that I should not be a bondservant of Jesus Christ, that I, 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 that I should not be indebted to you for everything, that this life I live, I was bought with a price, should I live for the glory and honor of you? Lord, help us, strengthen us. May we mature in the faith and grow in love for one another. And Father, may we never lose the hope of our Lord Jesus Christ, lose sight of that hope, The Lord Jesus is coming again for us, and that one day we will see him. Bless the rest of this week. We pray for camp, Father. Be with uh, David and and Dave and all the counselors and all the workers up there, Father. We pray that your gospel will go out in power, Father, and that we'll see souls saved, that these kids will see the need of the Savior, Father, and they'll accept Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. Just pray for uh, your blessings upon that week, as well as everyone else that they Go to work and carry on. Bless them, Father. In the name of the Lord Jesus we pray. Amen.